Welcome to the Discourse Magazine podcast. This is David Mashi, Senior Managing Editor of Discourse, a new online journal of politics, economics, and culture published by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. In this conversation, Director of Academic Outreach at Mercatus, Ben Klutzi, speaks with Dr. Alan Charles Coors, Henry Charles Lee Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Coors surveys the history of liberalism's triumphs and setbacks from the Enlightenment to modern college classrooms. The audio, as well as the transcript of this conversation between Klutzi and Coors, has been slightly edited for clarity. Hi, Professor Coors. Alan um, will do just fine. Okay, I'll call you Alan then. <laughs> so this is the first of a series of conversations that we'll be having uh, with academics and, and public intellectuals about liberalism, and uh, particularly how to highlight and elevate uh, liberal values that are important to the preservation of our society and, and way of life. We have an event that's scheduled for mid-August, and this is part of a series that will uh, be shared with the attendees of that event. So we're really glad to have you here. Uh, it is a real honor to be speaking with you. Uh, your background, your resume CV is so extensive. I think it would take me about a whole hour or more to, to go through it. That's so just because I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just going to give folks a, a snippet of your, your background. Um, we have Alan, uh, you know, Professor Alan Kors, uh, who is the Henry Charles Lear Professor Emeritus of History at University of Pennsylvania. And uh, your specializations involved uh, European intellectual history of the 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, you have published several books and many articles on early modern French intellectual history and uh, you were editor-in-chief of the Encyclopedia of Enlightenment. Um, you've also served for six years uh, after confirmation by the U.S. Senate on the National Council for the Humanities, and you've received numerous fellowships and awards. In fact, you won a recognition as uh, the National Humanities uh, Medal in 2005 for your study of European intellectual thought and your dedication to the study of the humanities. And I can go on and on and on. You are a champion of academic freedom, and that's uh, one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you as our first uh, guest today. We wanted to kick things off with a brief history of liberalism, thinking through the inception, triumphs, and uh, some of the setbacks. Can you walk us through the foundations of liberalism? A lot of people use the term you know, quite a bit. And um, can you tell us what it is and looking at it from the Enlightenment era and how those ideas informed what we think of as liberalism? Classical liberalism uh, has roots, of course, back in the ancient world as, as well in terms of thought. But the dramatic moment is when uh, Europe is increasingly uh, committed to a rejection of the presumptive authority of the past. Not against authority, but against the presumptive authority uh, of the past. And in a traditionalist society, the fear is that things will always get worse. If you change things that have allowed you to survive until the present, then 
why in the world would you change those crop rotations, methods, methods of childbirth? As a result of both intellectual and scientific developments, but also a growing sense of the possibility of change and progress, you see Europeans engaged in changes in trade, navigation, changes in crop rotation and crop planting, and indeed in child rearing. These are very dramatic. And uh, along with this sense of a culture that can break out of inherited traditional ways uh, of doing things, which means now a culture that believes that the future can be better than the past. And there have not been many cultures that have believed that. Intellectually, what we see are intellectual arguments against the presumptive authority of the past arising quite predictably out of scientific breakthroughs that prove Aristotelian physics wrong, uh, that prove the old mathematics, something that can be improved upon, Descartes, Newton. And once that genie is out of the bottle, a rejection of the presumptive authority of the past, then all things are open to question political structure, economic practices, the organization of society, and all of these become part of the most extraordinary debates in the 17th and in the 18th century. Uh, and there's a place where they converge, I think, in the thought of Voltaire, uh, who early on in the 1730s publishes a book, Philosophical Letters uh, from England, back to, back to France, um, in which he argues, here is a nation that has learned from the Turks, from the Chinese about inoculation. We don't have to be fatalistic um, in the face of smallpox. Uh, and we in France can learn from the English. Uh, they also, in all of their civil strife, have limited royal authority and increased the freedom of citizens with every major transformation in English history, unlike the French, he argues, um, who have simply increased tyranny and the arbitrary with every new civil war in France. Uh, and above all, he broaches the issue of religious toleration. Europe has rent itself through religious wars in the 16th and the 17th century, killing so much commerce and taking so many human lives and leaving society in states of despair. Voltaire looks at England and he says the most peaceful assembly in England is the stock and commodities exchange, <laughs> where the Episcopalian takes the word of the Presbyterian, the Presbyterian takes the word of the Jew, the Jew takes the word of the Muslim. And when they leave these peaceable and free assemblies, they go back to their own houses of worship in peace. If there were one religion in England, he says, there would be tyranny. If there were two, they would cut each other's throats but there are 30, so they live happily together in peace. 
Uh, and that celebration of commerce, of the market, as something that brings human beings who otherwise are slaughtering each other on religious grounds together in peace, as Voltaire writes, without intending it as such for the benefit of mankind. It's a very dramatic moment in the evolution of Western consciousness. Now, you'd mentioned that some of these ideas existed in the ancient world. Is there a reason why they didn't take root then? That question, of course, would be best addressed to a classicist um, <laughs> rather, uh, rather than to me. But I think that material changes can alter a civilization's sense of its possibilities. And once that sense of possibility is altered, but the ancient world is rejecting in Aristotle almost everything that preceded him <laughs> and is itself beginning, but that hardens into a new uh, orthodoxy itself intellectually. And of course, the dramatic changes in, in science applied uh, to the human condition, uh, that is going to wait until the 17th century. Human life is not terribly different in the Roman countryside than it is in the European countryside, 13th, 14th, 15th centuries. And it is when one has a sense of progress and its possibilities that those deep changes occur in civilization. I see. Now, you talked about Voltaire and you, you mentioned, you know, toleration, the idea that, you know, if you had two religions, they, you know, might be going after each other, but you have 30. And so everyone learns to uh, live with um, one another. And that idea begins to uh, take root. Now, would you think of liberalism as sort of a, a, a pre-political notion or in some sense, metapolitics? It is, in, in the modern sense, I suppose, a pre-political position with the most dramatic political implications. And I should, I should think of it that way. Uh, but I think you do right to focus on toleration um, as lying at the heart of it. If people are willing to slaughter each other over religious beliefs, in fact, over beliefs in general, mm -hmm. If people are not willing to argue, to debate, their recourse then, if they think matters are important, is to force and to coercion. So at the heart of the classical liberal tradition lies the notion of, in John Stuart Mill's term, mutual forbearance in which we allow each other to think, to choose a lifestyle, to seek to satisfy ourselves on the mm -hmm. deepest or on the shallowest questions uh, mm -hmm. with mutual forbearance, which has the advantage, as John Stuart Mill saw, of also producing experiments in living, experiments mm -hmm. in lifestyles, experiments in life's choices from which a whole society of individuals can learn negative or positive lessons. Right. And, and you'd mentioned in a recent talk uh, when you were talking about Voltaire, uh, and I think this was a quote, that uh, mutual forbearance, legal equality, peace and prosperity uh, go hand in hand. And if you lose the first, uh, the rest are in peril. 
Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Uh, in, again, in, in Voltaire's seminal philosophical letters, a work of extraordinary influence all throughout the Western world, what Voltaire is essentially arguing is that religious liberty, free trade and commerce, the end of aristocratic privilege by birth, restraint upon central power, and balance of powers and separation of powers, which he sees in the English model, uh, that all of these are part of the same general picture that has made progress possible and can make yet extraordinary progress possible in the future. And it's almost as though you, it, it would be difficult to separate the, the, the sort of the civil freedoms from the economic freedoms. They almost go, go hand in hand. Yeah, I think this is true. I can recall having a large number of arguments with some very brilliant people in the earlier part of the 20th century in which they, they were convinced that economic freedom alone in China, increased mm. economic freedom, would okay. lead to increased tolerance of diverse beliefs, uh, mm. would lead to political liberalization and opening. But in fact, it, it is the case that these things go hand in hand. And if you have a monopoly of power, such as the Chinese Communist Party exercises, for example, mm -hmm. economic liberalization will be sacrificed the first time that power and orthodoxy are threatened. I see. So what, what were some of the setbacks from the era that, you know, uh, Voltaire and Montesquieu and others were, were writing in, and they were kind of wanting to move in this direction. What were some of the challenges to their ideas at the time? The challenges, of course, came from, from two very different sides. One from conservative traditionalism that thought that any fraying of what held society together would unleash anarchy. And that still thought that uniformity of religious belief would lead to, to peace, diversity of belief, uh, would lead to the disintegration of society and the war of all against all on religious terms. And the threats came from the newly emerging socialist left in the 19th century that believed that the way to raise people out of unequal access to society's possibilities lay in the centralization of power and in affirming group over individual identity in this time in this case in terms of of economic class because i think one of the other hearts if you think about it it lies right at the center of religious toleration is individual freedom individual rights for the person who believes in liberty, there are decisions that can make, get made by, by one person, one ruler, one tyrant, or there are decisions that can make, get made by 51% of your neighbors on this or that mission. And then there are decisions that you yourself should make for yourself. And those tend to get subsumed under the tyrant or under collective democracy. Uh, and that has been a peril throughout the 19th and 20th and into the 21st century. 
Now you'd mentioned that um, individual freedom, individual right, toleration, pluralism, mutual forbearance, sort of a set of values that, that make it possible to have liberalism. And you'd mentioned that there is this, this might be pre-political, but it has political implications, which I guess is one of the major challenges for different, different groups to embrace a more liberal, liberal idea or notion of, of society. Absolutely. And of course, you and I are using liberal in the same generic sense mm -hmm. um, to most of American political discourse. Liberalism means something left of center um, mm -hmm. that favors more, not less government intrusion um, into the decisions that people ought to be free to make for themselves. How did that change? Was there a time, a moment in history where that shift occurred? That, that's a, a very interesting question because uh, usually you'll hear people in the state say the change occurred in the New Deal. Uh, somehow mm -hmm. Roosevelt was both the liberal and he was the, the architect of government interventions. But in the 19th century, you'll find Herbert Spencer decrying mm -hmm. the loss of the term liberalism, which he associates mm -hmm. with individual liberty to what he labels as the socialists, those who believe that, that acting through government, people are free to do what they want to control other people's lives and take the fruits of other people's labor. So that cry is not just a 20th century one, that the meaning of liberalism has been lost. Well, the root is free and liberty. And if you attach liberty to the group, mm -hmm. liberalism can have a very different meaning than if you attach the term liberty to the right of all individuals irrespective of birth. Interesting. Now, we, we've kind of touched on the US, so I wanted us to sort of continue on that, on that path. How do these ideas get, get introduced into America. I, you know, I had a political science professor once who said that, you know, Americans think of themselves as born Lockeans. And it seems as though a lot of the ideas that John Locke was writing about in the Second Treaties and other works got into the Declaration of, of Independence. And some of the founding fathers like uh, James Madison, Jefferson and others were studying those, those ideas. Yeah, I think the, the Lockean template is very dramatic on the founding and on American political life. The belief that social organization um, exists for the benefit of the collection of individuals in, in a society and that there are inherent rights that government exists to defend, to secure and defend, not to grant, but to defend, they pre-exist government. Uh, and it's not, it's not, I think, accidental that if you look at Southern slave-owning defenses of slavery, Cannibals All is probably the most celebrated such work. 
it begins with an attack on Lockean political philosophy, uh, with the argument that the basis of society is not the individual and the individual's rights. And that, that Lockean template serves us very well, even though it's hard to know at various moments of history how people, how deeply people in fact believe in it. It's difficult now to know. Um, if one talks to the products of our educational system, K through 12 and universities, whether that sense of Americans born Lockean um, mm -hmm. would still prevail. Uh, <laughs> though I must say it often cheers me at my darkest moments uh, to think that this is perhaps the only country in the world where if you tell a little kid irrationally not to do something, he looks up and says, it's a free country. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> now, what would you say was, was the, the most appealing aspect of, of the Lockean template? Was it this sort of uh, rejection of the monarchy, given the, the, the challenges that they'd faced under, under the British? I think at the heart of the Lockean political template, is the notion that society is a human construction, a human choice, that mm. the way we order a society is a choice that mm -hmm. free individuals make, mm -hmm. that the state is not something and the authority is not something handed down from the heavens over human, social, organized and political life. So, the secularism that the state is a secular concern, not a theological concern, that lies at the heart. That rights pre-exist the existence of government and the state and cannot be taken away by the state. Uh, it's a very, very simple way to, to show that, I think, to people that they believe it even if they don't know that they believe that. If you just ask if, if society sought to repeal the 13th Amendment, do they have the right to do that? Well, the Lockean answer would be no. Because it wouldn't be consistent. That no one has the right to take mm -hmm. away what are unalienable rights. I mean, the remarkable drama of American history, it has always seemed to me, is that we were given a founding template mm -hmm. of such intellectual and moral force mm -hmm. that the worst behavior of individuals in the long term fell to it and indeed had to fall to. American history has been one long, complex, difficult, but ultimately succeeding effort to recognize the truth that all men are created equal and endowed with unalienable rights and that government exists to secure those rights. That is what underlay the 13th, 14th, 15th amendments. That is what underlay the Civil Rights Act and movement of the 1960s. 
there is a dynamic toward that. When Martin Luther King said, yes, American principles, but why don't you apply them? That touched deeply and changed a society. That, that, that seemed to me really, really powerful. But do Americans have these Lockean uh, sensibilities that have had this sort of increasing trajectory uh, throughout history or have there been challenges uh, along the way, similar to the challenges that uh, Voltaire and, and others were seeing, you know, during the French Enlightenment? Oh, always and ever, um, and and into the future as well. One of the things that classical liberalism, in my view, simply has to acknowledge are the atavistic tendencies that always exist in human nature. The deep wiring toward tribalism, toward aversion to difference, toward domination of others. Uh, these these are and superstition and irrationality. There were those who thought uh, in the late 19th century, well, Germany, France, England, they trade together. They're trading nations. How there will be no more wars. Uh, and of course, that's not the case. Tribalism, nationalism, superstition, and atavistic behavior is always there threatening the increasing peace of an extended order that a liberal order can bring about. And if you fast forward maybe a, a century and a half later, you know, Friedrich Hayek, you know, was writing about the, the road to serfdom and kind of pushing back against some of those challenges. And you have your own story about uh, Hayek as well when the ideas were introduced to you when, when you were in college. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting story. Personally, it also is a very sad story if one thinks of the current state um, of higher education. Uh, my, my sophomore year at Princeton, I took a course on 20th century European intellectual history with a very distinguished intellectual of the left, uh, Arno Mayer, uh, who gave us a wide range of readings, but included some of his own work. And when he gave back the midterm examinations, uh, he said to us, you have embarrassed me. You shamed <laughs> me as a teacher. You all wrote what you thought I wanted to hear. Said, so for the final exam, and it will be one third of the final exam, I am assigning to you the book I most disagree with about the 20th century. And your questions will be not to critique it in any way, but to recreate its arguments with intellectual empathy so that I know that you know views categorically different from my own. At that moment, I knew how I wanted to teach intellectual history, but also that exposure to Hayek changed my own political and moral life. I can't think of more than one or two colleagues in my entire field um, who would do that today. Uh, and that, that is tragically sad. I suspect that all the surveys tell me that almost everyone who taught me in the early 1960s was on the left. I didn't know that. 
you could not infer it from their syllabi, from their lectures, even from their asides during a class. Today, people want not what they wanted, open, critical minds. Uh, more and more of the professoriate, and it is the betrayal of higher education, would prefer disciples and acolytes to open critical minds, let alone open critical minds that reach conclusions categorically different from their own. The whole model of education embodied in that story about my professor on the left exposing, indeed insisting that students be able to recreate arguments opposite of his own uh, with intellectual empathy that whole ethos has gone from higher education. Google, of course, now makes it difficult for students not to know where right. the professor sits or stands uh, politically. But we have anonymous questionnaires at the University of Pennsylvania. And what pleased me was year after year, students mm -hmm. saying the frustrating thing about his courses is you don't know if he's conservative <laughs> or radical. You don't know if he's an atheist or a religious believer. To me, that was a mark of pride. I wanted them to consider the thinkers, their way of thinking, their presuppositions, their unspoken beliefs about ethics and society and human nature, not to be studying themselves and their own opinions but to be studying how other minds and other times and places contributed to the dialogue of, of the West. Must have been quite transformational for you as, as, as a young, uh, young man in, in, you know, at that time and learning about all these ideas. And you, know, you might have had a you know, pre-existing view of the world. And oh, I did. <laughs> oh, did you? <laughs> Tell us more. Well, no, I, I grew up in a traditional uh, New York area FDR worshiping, uh, mm -hmm. nation reading uh, household. And uh, fortunately, uh, my parents uh, had the same forbearance that Mill has urged upon the population. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that is interesting. And, and of course, today, uh, one of the reasons why we're having this, this uh, forum, an event that's going to take place uh, mid-August is, you know, we see this trend towards nationalism and you know challenges to to notions of immigration and and sort of a more inward looking society you know on the one hand you know versus you know socialism being very very popular uh sort of more robust push towards you know welfare redistribution and and so on and um it seems like there's a there's a challenge in the different ideas that people have and sort of talking to each other yeah, I think that what there there are extraordinary things contributing to the increasing popularity of socialism or, or near socialisms among college graduates the last 15, 20 years. But surely one of those things is that they do not know the history of socialism. They do not know the history of centrally planned economies because it is simply not taught. One of the reasons I decided to offer 
uh, a seminar on history of classical liberal thought, which included the, the divisions and internal debates of, of classical liberal thought, is these authors were nowhere to be found on bookshelves. So there were Edward Said in, in 25 courses and Foucault in, in 50 courses and Derrida in 30 courses. And classical liberal authors were not even being taught. So I put together a seminar on, on classical liberalism uh, that exposed students to these thinkers. And I said, we leave our own politics at the, at the door. And we discuss these authors. And when they read The Road to Served, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, the number of students who, who would say to me, this is the first time I've ever been exposed to this kind of criticism of central planning. It's very striking. And the crimes in the history of socialism, the crimes of communism, when they discovered the death camps at Dachau, at Buchenwald, at Belsen, when they discovered those death camps, that was it for people able to say with pride, I was a fascist. Uh, I was a Nazi. And even anti-Semitism had to kind of lay low for a while. But now in the history of communism, we have 10, maybe 15, 20 times the death toll of the Nazi Holocaust. And our children do not know about them. They just don't know. You would have thought that with the fall of the Berlin Wall, with the fall of East European communism, that course after course would have looked at the difference between what happened mm -hmm. in actual centrally planned economies and in more liberal pre-enterprise economies in terms of mutual toleration, in terms of environment, in terms of air quality, let alone in terms of incarceration and death camps and reducing people to slavery in the gulag, uh, which exists to this day, of course, in, in China, and our students do not know. There is an Everest of bodies out there and so what's the experience tiptoe around them? Yeah, what's the experience for them? I mean, after they they leave your your class, uh, they, they I, you know they feel more enlightened. They want to go ahead and learn more, study more, and of course they want to learn. Have, they want yeah. to learn more, mm -hmm. and the more they read debates and differing opinions, the better off their minds are and their possibilities for independent critical thought are. So I would always tell students, look, we read Nozick here, and this may be the only course in which you read Nozick, but you have to read roles. You cannot simply be persuaded by the last author whom you've read or That's someone right. on your professor's syllabus. You've got mm -hmm. to know the debates. And what's so frightening now about what's mm -hmm. happening in the academic world is the attempt to quash debate, cancel culture, and saying that being exposed to heterodox 
ideas uh, that, that differ from the renient academic orthodoxy is dangerous, mm -hmm. um, is a menace to people's liberty, and you will hear them even say to people's lives. It's very sad what's happening yeah. in higher education. So, so what advice would you have for um, professors who want to, you know, get students to engage with genuine intellectual, you know, curiosity and, and humility? And understand the ideas that have influenced you know societies over over centuries one is you have to expose students to differing points of view and you have to encourage students to engage in honest debate and criticism and you have to stop punishing disagreement with a professor's point of view the only requirement the professor can make is that a student offer informed opinions and informed criticisms, informed by the materials and readings of a course and by readings related to what is assigned in a course. But it all starts in the heart of professors. Is your mission? to demystify students of all those wrong things they believe that are different from your beliefs, or is your mission to cultivate a critical, honest, open mind that can defend its views in open debate? And that ethos is disappearing from higher education. But I thought the term liberal arts was supposed to encourage this uh, type of engagement on campuses, uh, you know, introduce students to all kinds of ideas. And maybe one plus is that over the years, you know, there were just, you know, initially like just a, a few colleges, universities in the US. Now we have multiple, multiple thousands of, of universities across the United States, um, more, you know, women, minorities have access to, to universities. And that's, and that's a plus. On the other hand, I guess there's that question where, whether they've lived up to the, 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 the principle of, you know, liberal arts education. Well, yes, I mean, it, I, I think that what we have now, rather than schools of arts and sciences, SAS, or mm -hmm. schools of oppression studies and teaching the illiberal arts. Mm -hmm. uh, and let's start at a foundational level on, on this. It is the right of every free man and woman to decide for himself or herself the importance or the relative unimportance of his or her sex, gender, race, religion. What we have now are universities assigning official group identity to people, holding separate orientations, having an encouragement to just study one's self um, mm -hmm. as seen by the alleged voices and spokesmen. Trading in one set of masters over your identity for another is not liberation mm -hmm. uh, in any way, shape, or form. In the, in the early 1970s, uh, I co-founded a a college house at the University of Pennsylvania. Great, Resident. I was just about to ask you about that experience. Ah, so you actually lived it, you actually lived it. Tell uh, us more. 180 undergraduates 
eight resident grad fellows, four resident faculty members. And the way that we presented ourselves was this is a place to be an individual. This is the place to come and be who you are, culturally, politically, intellectually, uh, and to meet in this community that represents the whole university in terms of ideas and interests. And we, we attracted all four classes, half men, half women. We had with this invitation to come be a part of a community of individuals. We had the first wave of gay liberation. We had the campus crusade for Christ. We had feminists, radical feminists often campaigning for uh, full abortion rights. We had the central board of the Catholic Newman uh, Society at Penn. We had Maoist revolutionaries. We had college Republicans who were then virtually an underground group uh, in, the, in the early 70s. And I was uh, upset by Penn's tendency to segregate people by, by interests and identities. So we very consciously recruited so that we could have applications from scientists and musicians, um, from finance majors in, in Wharton to people working on the early stages of artificial intelligence. Uh, with my contacts in the admissions office, uh, I recruited applications from people they recommended from backgrounds that typically were living in more isolation at, at Penn. After the first year, for the next seven that I lived there, at a time when Penn was maybe three or four percent black, Van Pelt College House was never fewer than 20 percent black. All of this by people's choices of the kind of experience they wanted to have. People argued with each other all the time. They were uncivil in the beginning with each other all the time. But freedom is such a remarkable medium. They learned how to talk to each other. They learned how to humanize their relationships. The notion that student bodies on today's campuses are filled with vicious clan members who, who are out there fighting for dormitory white supremacy is just absurd. Our mm -hmm. colleges and universities have student bodies that are probably the most open to inclusive diversity of any group that has ever lived on American campuses. But now, alas, if that's going to change, it's changing in the opposite direction of being exclusive of anyone with a point of view that differs from their notion of mm -hmm. diversity and inclusion uh, and social justice. But these were extraordinary times. And we had speakers come in arguing the existence of God, followed by speakers mm -hmm. coming in on the non-existence by God. We had nationalists addressing, addressing the house. Um, we mm -hmm. had traditionalist conservatives addressing the house. It was glorious. 
going back to Voltaire, I guess they learned the, the core value of mutual forbearance. Oh, that, 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 that is exactly right. And the one rule there was you couldn't get violent to anyone, right? You had to keep it verbal. Uh, and in those circumstances, people learn to humanize their relationships and they learn to talk to each other. And we're paying a terrible price for not giving students that same freedom and opportunity today. And I guess my, um, you know, moving towards the, the, the end here, are, are, you, are you optimistic about the, the future? I'm not optimistic uh, about the future, uh, but then I'll, I'll give you a reason not to take me as a prophet. But I am not optimistic at the future because it does seem to me that those who are illiberal, who reject all of these views of, of mutual forbearance, of diversity of opinion and perspective, that these people are now in control of American education K through 12 and freshman year through Yale law degree. Um, it is the same dreary orthodoxy and absent a generational revolt, and I see no evidence of that happening. Um, the pressures toward conformity, toward signing on to an institutional orthodoxy, toward accepting a group identity over an individual identity, uh, these pressures are now so coercively great. And the political litmus tests in hiring or once those political litmus tests are in place, the self-selection of people um, into dare I go into academic life, dare I go into public school teaching, uh, that that now becomes a disincentive for a diver an intellectual diversity of people uh, to enter education. And higher education is the gatekeeper to the rewards of society. And parents understandably say, let me get this kid the most prestigious degree he can get. Let me get her the degree that opens the most job opportunities. And the nonsense will roll off their backs like water off a duck, but it doesn't roll off their backs like water off a duck if that's all they hear. Now, in the 19, early 1980s, some students said to me that I think that history could predict the future. And I said, not at all, but I think it can tell you what can't happen. Mm. And students said to me, oh, what do you know as an historian can't happen? And I said, <laughs> white South Africans will never give up political power without a bloodbath. No Russian government ever will accept a unified Germany. No Russian government ever will accept a hostile Poland on its border. I was <laughs> 0 for 3 with my most self-confident <laughs> predictions, so no one should take my pessimism as prophecy. That's right. But I would say that, you know, and again, this is not a left, this is a right thing, but it's sort of uh, principles and ideas that can inform discourse and debate in the way in which we conduct ourselves in a in a free society. And I think you know your your practical example of uh, what happened in Van Pelt. Um, I'd imagine that it did change uh, the culture 
quite a bit. And uh, perhaps uh, we need more of those going forward. But to have that, you would need university administrators and professors who care about getting very different people talking to each other. These days, when someone at a university says, we need to have a conversation about X, what that means is I talk until you listen and agree with me. <laughs> so how do we change that? I think we have got to end the subsidy of higher education. If they want to have closed shop political fiefdoms, being gatekeepers to society's best offerings, they either do that pluralistically in a way that merits support or let the subsidies stop including the nonprofit status of universities stop. Uh, if they wish to engage uh, in the business of politics, not the business of open-minded and critical education, let them do that on their own dime, not ours. Wonderful. And, and with that uh, insightful advice, uh, I think we are at the end of our conversation. I really appreciate it, Alan, for, for taking the time to speak to us. My privilege. And uh, I think the, uh, our audience for the uh, event in mid-August will really enjoy uh, this uh, conversation as well. So thank you very much. And uh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Discourse Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please feel free to share this podcast with like-minded friends and to leave us a review. We're always happy to hear from you. Finally, check out Discourse Magazine, which is available free online at www.discoursemagazine.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.